Please open your Bible or a pew Bible up to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 12 through 19. Peter's kind of ending a subsection dealing with suffering. Uh, I think the last three or four weeks we've talked about suffering, or the last three or four weeks I've been here anyways, we've talked about suffering. Peter kind of draws everything together in this passage uh, and perhaps pushes things in a very startling direction about how we should respond to suffering. Uh, I'm a bit behind the schedule that I meant to be on because we were out a week quarantining. Uh, And so just for those who like to see the big picture, I think uh, next week we're gone. The week after that, I'm going to preach on all of 1 Peter 5 so that we can begin our Lent series that's going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke the week after that at the first week of Lent. So that's where we're going after this uh, for those who like to see the big picture. But for now, we're looking at 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Give your ear to the reading of God's word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. As Peter concludes this passage, or rather concludes his teaching on suffering as Christians, He gives us two basic instructions that are going to be our outline this morning. He says, don't be surprised by trials. Instead, rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings. First, Peter warns us, don't be surprised by trials. Don't be surprised by trials. In pre-marriage counseling, one of the jobs of the minister or counselor who's doing the counseling is to help an engaged couple to have realistic expectations for marriage. So you try to cover things like, what do healthy disagreements look like? How do you handle an argument well? But especially some younger couples say, you don't understand, Pastor. We're in love. We're not going to fight. We're not going to argue. We're not going to disagree. Don't worry about it. And then, of course, a month or two into their marriage, They're calling their parents in tears, saying, Mom, Dad, something strange happened. We were shopping. We needed toothpaste. And I reached for the Colgate, and he insisted on Crest. And and we disagreed, and we got in a fight, and I don't know what's happening. I don't know who I married. Is this person a monster? What do I do? Okay, Peter, in the same way, like a wise counselor, he's trying to shape our expectations for the Christian life. And he says, be prepared Here's your expectations. Suffering will happen. 
Notice he doesn't say, if you face trials, don't be surprised. He says, when you face trials, don't be surprised. As if something strange were happening to you. Trials will come. They are part and parcel of the Christian life. So we need to have realistic expectations. Why are Christians surprised when suffering and trials and pain come upon them? It seems to me there's a number of reasons. One peculiar to our own age is that it's only in very recent generations that hygiene, sanitation, modern medicine, electricity, indoor heating, refrigeration, and so forth have advanced to the point that life expectancies have greatly risen. But for most of human history up into the early 20th century, infectious diseases were the number one leading cause of death. Life was short through most of human history. Oftentimes the average was only 30 years or so. As Wesley puts it in The Princess Bride, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. But our modern lives have in fact so effectively removed many dangers and trials that suffering when it comes upon us seems like an aberration, like something strange or bizarre is happening, like something's gone terribly wrong. And indeed, in the biblical story, the biblical picture of the world, something has gone terribly wrong. God created the world very good, but humans have rebelled against their creator, and as a result, creation has become disordered. And so the realistic biblical expectation is that we should both see the glory of God and his goodness in the created world, and we see it so clearly on a day like this when it's sunny and I watch the sunrise come up and the shadows of the, of the sisters range was shining on the clouds in beautiful color. And you think creation is good. And yet creation is also fallen, disordered, and broken. And so trials and suffering should also be expected. But we might reason, Peter has just concluded in verse 11, the verse right before our passage this morning, to Jesus Christ belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And earlier in chapter 3, Peter says Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And we might think, surely, given Christ's rule over all things, we Christians should be protected from suffering and from trials. Some even think of the Christian life as a sort of bargain with God. If I say Jesus is Lord and follow him, then you keep me from all suffering and trial and harm. If I worship God, then God's obligated to give me material blessing in this life. But right after writing, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, Peter immediately warns us, don't be surprised when trials come upon you. To be a Christian is to be called to follow Jesus, to walk the path that he has walked. And that path leads to glory only through the cross. So it is for our Lord, so it is for us. In 2.21 that we looked at several months ago, Peter writes, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. 
and at 4.1, the beginning of this long section on suffering, Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Do you remember how Peter initially addressed the church at the beginning of the letter? He said the church, Christians have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. That's good news. We have a glorious hope. But Peter says in this life, Christians live as exiles who are scattered throughout the world. So we need to have realistic expectations. Suffering and trials will come. But before we move on, notice one more thing here in verse 12. As Peter concludes his reflections on suffering, he reframes suffering in terms of being a fiery trial which comes upon you to test you. Do you see that there? He's using a little bit different language than he's used earlier in the book to refer to suffering. And by doing so, he alludes back to the opening of the letter, where in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he writes, In this hope you rejoice, that is our eternal inheritance, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses the suffering that Christians are facing, specifically suffering for doing good and for following Jesus, as a fiery trial or a refiner's fire to test and refine us like gold and silver. And so at the end of this passage we've read this morning, Peter says Christians are called to suffer according to God's will. Even our suffering is subject to God's sovereign will. It's within his power. It's subject to his authority. It's limited by him. Now, in the abstract, this might seem cruel. Why would God will that we suffer? Why would he will that his people face trials? But the suffering itself is not an end in itself. Rather, it is used according to God's sovereign will for his own redemptive purposes, both to refine us and for his redemption of our world. We see how this works out in the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. Do you remember that story? Joseph is an obnoxious youngest sibling. Are there any obnoxious youngest siblings here? No, not raising your hands? Okay, fair enough. Joseph starts out as an obnoxious youngest sibling who sees in a dream that one day he's going to rule over his brothers and his parents, and he kind of rubs it in their nose. Guess what I dreamed about last night? Da, 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 da. And so Joseph's brothers get angry with him. They hate him. They secretly attack him and sell him as a slave into Egypt. Joseph ends up not only a slave, but in prison. Before, through various twists and turns, he becomes an advisor to the Pharaoh and prepares Egypt to face a coming famine. Finally, Joseph's family comes down to Egypt because the famine is so severe, and there they encounter Joseph, who now rules as an assistant to the Pharaoh. When Joseph reveals himself to his family, this is what he says. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. 
It was not you who sent me here, but God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see what happens in the Joseph story? Joseph faces terrible trials and suffering. He's sold as a slave. He winds up falsely accused and in prison. But through this suffering, this trial, this testing, as Peter puts it, it's all according to God's will. God uses Joseph's suffering for his own redemptive purposes, to save Israel and Egypt from the famine, but also to refine Joseph from being an off-putting, self-righteous youth into a wise man who lovingly reconciles with his brothers as he entrusts himself to a faithful creator while doing good. But Joseph's story of redemptive suffering in the face of trials is only a picture of God's most profound use of suffering and trials for redemptive purposes. Like Joseph, Jesus is hated by his brothers. He is betrayed and sold into the hands of foreigners. Like Joseph, Jesus is falsely accused and imprisoned. But unlike Joseph, Jesus' trials and suffering go even further to the point of death. But even Jesus' suffering that Peter's talking about here is suffering on the cross is used for God's redemptive purposes. And so in his sermons in the book of Acts, Peter refers to this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's God's plan that Jesus dies on the cross. He says, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see, it's the same thing as the Joseph story. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Peter's saying the same thing about Jesus in these sermons as Joseph said about himself. He's saying, you meant evil against Jesus, crucifying him, but God meant it for good. Jesus was delivered up according to God's sovereign plan that many people should be kept alive through his suffering. Peter's referenced a variety of sufferings in his letter, including false accusations, slander, reviling, insults, evil, and perhaps even the threat of physical violence. Yet although those who do these things mean them for evil, these trials come upon us according to God's will so that God can use them to test us, to refine us, and even for his redemptive purposes. Of course, our suffering is not vicarious like Jesus's. But if we face these trials in a Christ-like manner, do you remember Peter said in chapter 2 and 3 that God uses the way we face trials well for his redemptive purposes. He says, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In chapter three, he says, they may be one without a word when they see your God-fearing and pure conduct. And so the way we face trials can even be a witness to those about us. Trials then are part and parcel of the Christian life. Don't be surprised by them. They will come. How then should we react when trials come upon us? Here is Peter's second instruction and perhaps the most startling thing he says about suffering in the whole letter. He says, rejoice as you share Christ's suffering. Rejoice as you share Christ's suffering. This is entirely counterintuitive. It goes against our natural instinct. Who's happy about suffering? Note, Peter doesn't say rejoice in the fact that you suffer. 
He doesn't say suffering's not that bad, don't worry about it. He doesn't downplay or deny the reality of the suffering we face, but he says, even in the midst of suffering, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. If you're insulted for Christ's name, if you suffer as a Christian, because you're a Christ follower, you are sharing in Christ's suffering. And therefore, Peter says, you have a reason to rejoice. Peter's own experience in Acts 5 vividly illustrates what he means. In Acts 5, Peter and the other apostles are preaching and teaching about Jesus in the temple. And they're arrested, imprisoned, and charged not to talk about Jesus anymore. The, the religious leaders say, knock it off. But Peter responds, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree and God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witness to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Okay, that's how Peter responds. We must obey God rather than men. And for this response, Peter and the other apostles are beaten And again, charge, don't teach Jesus anymore. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. Acts 5 concludes, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So Peter knows what it's like to rejoice even in the midst of suffering that he can share in Christ's suffering. In verse 15, Peter sets out an important qualification to this principle. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Throughout this letter, Peter has provided a full description of Christ's suffering. In his sufferings, Christ was blameless like a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter says he was sinless and suffered with integrity. He says Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. He did not retaliate, but trusted God. Christ's suffering was vicarious. That is to say, he suffered in the place of others. And Christ's suffering, Peter says, was inextricably linked to his glory. We are called to rejoice only insofar as we share in this suffering of Christ. Only insofar as we too suffer righteously for doing good for Christ's name. In verse 15, then Peter's qualifying this. He says, if you suffer punishment for murder or theft or doing evil, that's not sharing in Christ's suffering. That's getting the punishment you deserve for wrongdoing. Peter's already said the same thing earlier in in chapter 2. He said, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Okay, if you deserve to be beaten and you get beaten... Great, that's not suffering like Christ. Verse 15, though, Peter adds not just murder, theft, and doing evil, which presumably all Christians would know they should not be doing, but he adds this last item, also meddling, which doesn't seem to fit with the rest. Uh, We don't typically rattle off the worst sins as being murder, theft, evil doing, and meddling. But here's Peter's point at this list. He's saying it's obvious to you that if you committed murder, even though you're a Christian, suffering for that murder is not suffering for Christ's name. It's suffering because you did something wrong. Saying, Likewise, when you meddle, when you're a busybody, 
when you're an insufferable, self-righteous, judgmental busybody and stick your nose where it doesn't belong and someone tells you off for it, you can't say, well, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. Okay, that's not suffering in, for Christ's name. We're tempted often to claim anytime we suffer, if we're a Christian, it must be for Christ's sake. But sometimes it's just because we've said something foolish. We've done something foolish. So Peter's warning us, act in a Christ-like manner. We should rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's suffering, but we need to make sure that we are indeed sharing in Christ's suffering and not simply suffering for our own faults. Why then should we rejoice as we share in Christ's suffering? It's still suffering. It's still not pleasant. Well, Peter gives us three reasons. First, in verse 13, he says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We should rejoice as we share in Christ's suffering because it means that we are indeed following Christ's example, walking in his footsteps along a path that leads eventually to glory. It means that when Christ returns in his glory, we shall have good reason to rejoice and be glad at the arrival of our victorious king. To use Peter's language from chapter 1, sharing in Christ's suffering now in this life is proof that we are indeed heirs to the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven to be revealed at the last time. Rejoice as you share in Christ's suffering, looking ahead to Christ's glory. If you share in Christ's suffering now, you will share in Christ's glory when he returns. Second, in verse 14, Peter says, it's not only hope of things to come that gives us reason to rejoice, but even in the present, we have reason to rejoice as we share in Christ's suffering. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed and the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here, Peter's simply echoing Jesus's own teaching from the Sermon on the Mount that we've already meditated on in our confession of sin. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile, <clears throat> when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Although you might be insulted or slandered or persecuted for Christ's name, Jesus Christ has declared a blessing on you in the midst of that very situation. Okay, what great reason to have for rejoicing, as bad as our situation is, to have Christ's own blessing upon us. And now Peter says part of the blessing that is that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you even in the midst of suffering. As you share in Christ's suffering, the Holy Spirit rests upon you. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering then does not mean denying the reality of suffering or pretending like it's fun. It's not. No one should go looking for suffering. But Peter says we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering as God's spirit rests upon us. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering then is a supernatural work of God. And then in both verses 14 and 16, Peter gives us a third reason to rejoice as we share in Christ's suffering. Typically, mocking, insulting, reviling, slander, these various things Peter names, they bring shame upon a person. 
And that's one of the main forms of suffering Peter addresses in this book, being shamed for following Jesus. But Peter tries or, or seeks here to invert the assumption that following Jesus is something to be ashamed of. Instead, he says, you should see honor and glory in the very thing which other people are trying to use to shame us, to mock us. He says to be insulted for the name of, of Christ, to suffer as a Christian, that is to suffer as one who's named as a Christ follower, is to be marked by the name of Christ. Okay, and the world may try and shame you for that and say how embarrassing it is to be someone who loves Jesus or follows Christ. But Peter says, far from being shamed, this is something to glory in. Others might try to insult you, but in fact, they are saying you belong to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. By calling you a Christian, they're saying you are a member of the royal family, of God's own household. Peter says right here in the very insult they're heaping upon you is reason to glory, to be honored. Far from shaming, being marked by Christ's name is in fact the highest honor to which we could achieve. And so we rejoice as we share in his sufferings. When we suffer as a Christian, then we should not be ashamed, but we should glorify God, Peter says, in Christ's name, just as Peter and the apostles did when they left the council after being beaten. Then in verses 17 and 18, Peter concludes, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This first bit, it's time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. It's a little bit unclear, but I think what Peter means is this. Christ's suffering, as, as we've already reflected, it was righteous. It was suffering unjustly, something he didn't deserve. But the reason he endured it was because he was suffering vicariously. He was suffering in our place for the sins of others. And so Christ suffered the judgment for sin. If we share in Christ's suffering now, it inc which includes being insulted for Christ's name, ostracized as Christ's follower, and so forth, we are sharing in Christ's work, and Christ has already been judged in our place. Judgment begins at the household of God. And so if we share in Christ's suffering, that judgment has already been dealt with. It begins here. But Peter continues, if we refuse to share in Christ's suffering now, if we're unwilling to be insulted for his name, if we cannot endure being shamed as a Christian, he says, if we do not obey the gospel, the good news of God, then what will be the outcome? It's a rhetorical question, but the point is clear. We will be liable to judgment. So either we can share in Christ's suffering, which was endured as the judgment of sin, or we can bear the judgment of sin ourselves. Peter makes this point, drives it home from Proverbs 11. If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The point of the proverb is not that salvation is somehow uncertain, but rather that it is difficult. It is costly. From God's perspective, even the most righteous person is in dire need and can only be rescued from judgment at great cost, indeed at the cost of God's own son. 
If that's how difficult it is to save even a righteous person, then what will become, Peter asks, of the ungodly and of the sinners? Our only hope, then, is to obey the gospel of God, to be marked by Christ's own name, to share in Christ's suffering, so that one day we might, too, share in Christ's glory. Let us pray. Lord, our natural inclination is to flee from suffering. When trials come upon us, we act surprised, as if something strange were happening to us. Yet your servant Peter has warned us, trials are to be expected as part of the Christian life. More than warning us, though, he has encouraged us that we even have reason to rejoice when we share in Christ's suffering. And so we ask, as Peter instructs us, that your Holy Spirit would rest upon us, And that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us strength to endure suffering and you would allow us to share in Christ's suffering as we entrust ourselves to the faithful creator. Thank you, Lord, that we see in Peter's letter here that even as we suffer, we are being drawn into the divine life as we learn to trust God the Father as the Holy Spirit rests upon us and as we are brought in to share in Christ's own suffering and even share in his death so that one day we can share in his resurrection and his eternal life. Lord, there are some here who are perhaps uncommitted. They have no sense of being marked by Christ's own name. They're not ready to be called a Christian. Lord, let this stern warning that Peter gives weigh upon them that they will indeed be liable to judgment. Others, Lord, are perhaps on the fence. They want to be called Christians, and yet they are afraid of the shame, the insults, the ostracization that might come with that. Lord, give us courage. Let us see, even in the midst of suffering for Christ's name, that there is great blessing to be had. And by the way we face suffering and trials, let us be a witness to our friends, our neighbors, our family, our co-workers. Lord, I ask especially for the students. That's such a hard time in life to bear the name of Christ when other students can be hurtful and judgmental, but give them courage and strength to bear Christ's name faithfully in all that they say and do and let them be blessed even in the midst of trials. We offer all these things in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son, who suffered as the righteous for us who are unrighteous, so that we might be reconciled to you. Amen.